So what is it that you boast in? No need to act overly spiritual this morning. Uh, We all boast in something. When I say boast, I mean, what is it that you glory in? What is it that you rejoice in? What is it that you take most pride in? For some, it's their strength. For others, their abilities. For some, their athleticism. For others, their looks. For some, their wisdom, their education, accomplishments, skills, their titles, their career, their wealth, material possessions, their favorite team, relationships, maybe even the status that some of those things bring. For others, it's their church their doctrine, their freedoms, their family, their friends, their children. And I believe this question is an important consideration for us. What is it that you boast in? And it's important because that which we boast in most finds its way moving ever closer to the center of who we are and what it is that we give our lives to. And if we're, aren't, if, if we're not careful, the good things that are given to us that we can easily boast in become ultimate things that we feel like we can't live without. Those things take center stage. And perhaps most dangerous of all, those things keep us from being mastered by the most important thing. I'll never forget where I was when I heard John Piper in 1998 call my generation to make a lasting difference in this world by being mastered by just a few things. This is what he said. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles that you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or from a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. In our passage this morning, I believe that's what Paul calls these Galatian Christians to do, to boast in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ, to be set ablaze by the work of Jesus on the cross and to allow that work to be the North Star which guides us, to be the dominant identity which shapes who we are. And so as we hear Paul's final words in this letter this morning, the challenge before us is to not waste our lives boasting in the wrong things, but rather to be mastered by the most important thing, making the most fundamental boast, the work of Jesus on our behalf. 
That which we glory most in, that which we rejoice most in, ought to be the work of Jesus. And so with that need before us to be mastered just by the most important thing, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our holy God, uh, we come to you confessing that we are a boastful people and all too often boasting in things that don't last. Forgive us. Help us. And even in this sermon, Lord, help us understand you're not calling us to go through this life as if there's no joy to be found. No, you have freed us to enjoy the gifts in this life in such a way that would make clear where our most foundational, fundamental boast lies. And so I pray that we would be free to rejoice in and to use the good gifts in this life that will only happen if we rejoice and glory and boast in the most important thing. And so I just plead with you, would you allow the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, the preparation that has gone into this, would you allow that to be clearly communicated so that your purpose would be accomplished for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, we will find ourselves in the last few verses of this letter. Verses 11 through 18. This week, we'll conclude our chapter by chapter, verse by verse, walk through this letter. Next week, we come back, and uh, I would just encourage you, we've taken time to study each pearl of, of, of passages that we've broken up. Next week, Lord willing, we will get to just string the pearls and see how it all hangs together as we do an overview sermon of the whole letter of Galatians. But before we do that sermon, we've come to the official conclusion of this letter. And usually at the end of letters, Paul writes, he's got several things in mind that he's trying to accomplish. And so this morning, instead of trying to organize a few points for the sermon, we're just going to walk through each of these verses to understand what is the lasting impression Paul is trying to leave upon the reader, upon the listener, his original audience but also you and I this morning. And so beginning in verse 11, this is what we read. The word of the Lord says this, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And so Paul at the end of this letter takes up the pen so as to authenticate the letter, so as to underscore its contents. And he does that by writing himself as opposed to what would have been for most of Paul's letters, particularly those by which he's, he is uh, writing while he's in prison, he would be dictating the letter. Someone else would be, would be writing it down. And so what Paul does here is he says, hey, I want to underscore the importance of what you've heard. And he's doing that by writing these last few verses. This isn't the only time Paul does this. 
right? If you were to see the end of the letter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul makes clear this is what he's doing. Uh, the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21, the end of the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 17, and the end of the letter to Philemon. And to be clear, uh, some people look at this and they say, well, the reason that Paul is accentuating the large letters, it's because of the poor eyesight that he has. And while I do think Paul had poor eyesight, I don't think that's the point here. I believe what Paul is doing is he is writing to evoke the attention of the reader. Pay special attention to even these words. And it's a good reminder for you and I, in, all throughout Scripture, there are no throwaway words. You don't get to the beginning of a letter. You don't get to the end of a letter. You don't read through the genealogies in your Bible and just go, yeah, this really doesn't matter. It all matters. All of Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. And all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, verse 17. And so with these last verses, Paul isn't seeking to introduce a new topic or a new discussion, a new direction. Rather, he's just reminding the Galatian Christians of the, ne the necessary truths that he's already given them. These reminders were to encourage the Galatians. Hold these truths tightly. Hold these truths closely and hold them dearly. And then what do we see in verses 12 and 13? Paul says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. If you've been with us throughout this study, you have uh, you would remember that there have been times where Paul really lays in to these false teachers, these Judaizers who were coming in behind Paul into the church, seeking to do damage, not trying to encourage the church to just outright not believe in God, but to say, if you really want to be a son of Abraham, then you must do the work of Abraham and you must be circumcised. And so Paul is seeking to make clear the motives, the ungodly motives of these false teachers. Uh, what would compel these false teachers to add circumcision and law keeping to the necessity of faith so that they would be able to have full acceptance with God? What would lead someone to, to preach a message like that? Paul makes clear. He says they desire, verse 12, to make a good showing in the flesh. If we could just peel back the motives behind the message, what we would find are false teachers who were seeking to earn the approval of man. They want to look good in the eyes of man rather than be faithful in the eyes of God. That's their motive. And this desire... It was true of false teachers then. It's true of false teachers today. It's true of professing Christians today. 
I mean, just think about your evangelism. Do you desire to be faithful before the eyes of God or do you desire to win the approval of man? And Paul says something in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Very outset of this letter. He says, if you desire to be a pleaser of man, if you live for man's approval, there's no way you can be a servant of Christ. And then Paul goes on to mention more of their motivation. Verse 12, why is it that they preach this message? Because they want to avoid the persecution that would come from preaching the cross. But not just avoid persecution, but also they want to glory in the flesh of their converts. Verse 13, these false teachers are preaching a works-based salvation. Why? Because they fear human opposition and because they love human praise. They fear human opposition and they love human praise. And let's just be clear. Any person who teaches with those motivations are dangerous teachers. They're dangerous because they will not be able to insist on what God's word says. And so church, you should be aware of teachers like this. Those who teach, those who shy away from the truth of God's word because they fear opposition and because they love human praise. And let me just also say, church, you should pray regularly for your pastors that we would not be marked by this. It's been said to me that one of the most dangerous people in all of the world are insecure pastors. Because instead of being filled up and convinced of God's word and, and the fulfillment that comes from being faithful to the word, insecure pastors then wanting praise from people begin to alter God's word. They begin to shy away from speaking the truth. Insecure pastors are dangerous because they need from others what only God can give. And that will almost always alter what they're willing to insist on. And so again, before we roll our eyes at such bad motives, fearing human opposition and loving human praise... Uh, before we so easily cast these false teachers aside as ridiculous in their motives, again, I wonder how much of our walk is marked by the same fear and the same love. Are you being faithful to walk in the Spirit knowing that you walking in the Spirit will incur and invite human opposition? And are you being faithful to walk in the Spirit, knowing that if you do indeed faithfully walk in the Spirit, you will not win the praise of man? Oh, that we would be marked by the boldness of Paul, who was convinced 
that the word of God is indeed true and therefore must indeed be insisted on no matter the cost. They preached this message because they hoped to avoid the persecution, not just persecution, but the persecution that comes from the stigma of the cross. I mean, these false teachers were trying to draw these Galatians into this false web of the law. This web of, of the law and, 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 and on the surface, that web of do for your salvation, it can be flattering. Because baked into that message is that you have something that God needs. You have a part to play in order to complete the work that Christ has done. Baked into that message is, is this truth that you are good and that you're enlightened and you're not weak and you do have the power to change. And who among us wouldn't love to hear that just the way we are, we have something to add to the work of being made right in the sight of God. Works-based salvation appeals to our pride. The true gospel that Paul preached humbled everyone, but it also freed us from that pride. It frees you from the pride. There's no self-esteem in the gospel that Paul has preached. There's nothing flattering about you and I in the gospel that Paul has preached. We so easily want to hear about brokenness in the world, not our sin. We can easily want to hear about our weaknesses, not our rebellion against the holy God. And the gospel, the true gospel, gives us what we need because it insists on the stigma of the cross. That's what Paul's message. Paul's message is an alienating message whenever your pride is on the line. Because this gospel message requires you to see yourself as you truly are. You and I are more sinful than we dare to dream. There is a total inability to do anything about that. And Paul shows up and he preaches a message, or he has preached. These false teachers show up pre preaching a message that says, no, 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 we don't have to go that far. You may have issues, but surely... Not all of it is bad. And Paul's message is this. All of it is bad. It's worse than you dared to even imagine. And Paul's message would provide freedom from this sick disease called pride that so easily dominates our lives. Pride is such a dangerous master to serve because it is oh so fickle. I mean, think about this. If you are loved because you deserve it, you will only continue to be loved as you keep on deserving it. 
there is such a weight and a pressure to this message that says, hey, you want to be accepted by God? Then do this work. What I'm signing up for then is a life of pressure and weight and worry and anxiety of going, am I still doing enough? And in the gospel, that's what you gain. You gain a love that you can't earn and a love that you don't deserve. And that kind of love excludes all boasting that you and I would have in anything that we would bring to the table. And it's that kind of love, a love that you can't earn and that you don't deserve. It's only that kind of love that you can't lose whenever it's set on you. Because it's not a love that's contingent upon your works. It's a love that's contingent upon his commitment and his character to love you. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the Christian faith. This is what Paul has been laboring for these Galatian Christians to not forget. In the middle of all of these messages that are coming that are tempting you to think that you can do something just to remember the kind of love that we need is a love that we can't earn. And if we can't earn it, then by God's grace, we can't lose it. And so it's a love that frees us then. And the way in which we receive that love, it's not by doing good works. That's what Paul has been refuting this whole letter. It's by coming to Christ in repentance and faith, like turning from your efforts of trying to work your way into God's good graces, turning from that and placing your faith and your trust in the work of Jesus Christ, trusting that it's Jesus's work that makes us acceptable for, before God. And the good news of the Christian faith is that if you come to Christ that way, then you can know full forgiveness. You can know a love that isn't contingent upon your behavior. It's a love that's contingent upon his commitment to hold and to keep. But in order to get there, you have to see that the thing you were created for is the thing that your sin will not let you get to. You were created for your God and your sin will not let you get there. And there is a total inability that you and I have to, to find any way around that chasm or that gap. And that's what we deserve. No way to get there. But in mercy that's unspeakable and grace that is undeserved. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus the Christ, to live the life that pleased the Father at every turn. And so the righteousness that's required to be before God, Jesus lived it. He earned it. And the Bible says that all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him, Jesus then credits that righteousness to them. That's the best news you'll hear today. And yet there's another reality that, well, what are we doing with your sin? What are we doing with our inability because of our sin to be with a holy God? And so it's not just that Jesus credits his, uh, our account with his righteousness, but the Bible then says that he takes upon our sin debt. 
and he absorbs the wrath of God that's owing to sin. And he drinks all of it. He doesn't drink most of it so that, yeah, on days where you're really bad, there's a little bit of God's wrath for you to continue to drink down. No, by the grace of God, he drinks it all. He endures the full weight of God's holy hatred and fury against sin. And that was, that, man, that was yours. And that was mine. And if you're not a Christian, that is yours. And he expires. He dies. Exhausting the wrath of God upon the cross. And yet, in glorious victory, he raised from the dead three days later. Showing that every promise that he had made and every statement about him that, he, uh, that the Bible attests to was indeed true. Death isn't the enemy. Uh, death isn't uh, the master over our Lord and Savior. No, Jesus holds the keys of even sin and death in his hands. He is victorious over it all. And all who place their faith and trust in Jesus, as John prayed earlier, when, they, when we breathe our last, we will open our eyes and we will be in the presence of this God for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would just, full forgiveness is found only here with a God who loves like this. Why would you want to hold on to sin? And not give it all up so that you would gain the God you were created for. You can give it all up and you can gain God. It would be the joy of any person in this room to talk to you about that. But just know how you get that is not by talking to people. Turning from your sin. Placing your faith and your trust in Christ alone. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, we need the gospel today because it's that message that will safeguard you and I from wasting our lives by boasting in other things. How kind of God to keep us from living such futile lives. I mean, these false teachers, they were worshiping the idol of approval. That's what's happening underneath all of their teaching. Their ministry is a form of self-salvation. Paul referenced this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. I mean, these false teachers are offering a religion that really focuses on the externals and the behavior rather than the internal change of heart and character and motives. And that's a, that's a very important distinction for you and I even as we hear God's word being preached, as we hear people talk about the gospel. Religion is an outside-in type of approach. Religion focuses on behavior, doesn't deal with the heart. The gospel is an inside-out reality where a change of heart occurs that leads then to new motivations for our behaviors and our conduct. And as he said before, Paul even makes clear, those who seek to live by the law, they can't do everything the law commands. That's what the law insisted, that if you were going to follow the law, then you had to uphold all of the law. And Paul says these people who are coming in preaching the law, they can't even uphold all of the law. 
And so they're picking and choosing what it is that you need to follow. That only leads to more bondage and slavery. And so Paul says, what's at the, what's at the, the heart of your religion is what you boast in. And so how do you answer that? What's at the very bottom, the, the essence, the, the reason that you are in a right relationship with God? What is that? For you, if somehow you and your good works and your ability to do so, if that has smuggled its way into that answer, then you will likely boast about the wrong things. It has to be owing only to the grace of God through the work of Christ. If the cross is a good help, but your works are needed in order to make the difference, then you will always boast in the flesh. I mean, the cross is pretty good, but man, I got to come on the backside of that and do just a little bit. That just a little bit will exclude you boasting solely in the cross and will lead you to boast in what you can do. And that's what Paul's point is in verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul says. May it, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. His only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Those that are devoted to the law, they, they boast in what it is that they've accomplished. Even though they disobey other parts of the law, they still turn around to boast in the parts that they have obeyed. And those who boast in the cross, they put all of their confidence in what Christ has done. Is all of your confidence this morning in the work of Christ? When it comes to your relationship with God, is all of your confidence in the work of Christ? And you being most confident in the work of Christ for your justification, for being made right with God, that will be fuel for you to work in sanctification, becoming more and more holy, working with God as you give yourself to the ordinary means of grace. Those who boast on the cross know that salvation is completely of the Lord. And Paul says the cross of Christ has introduced a new creation, verse 15. That's the fruit, that's the product of the cross of Christ. New creation, not different behaviors, not cleaned up attitudes, but new, new creations. The present evil age no longer rules over these new creations. Because they have been delivered by the cross. It doesn't mean that the present evil age won't pound these new creatures. These new creations that God has brought about in and through the work of Christ. Yeah, the presence of the present evil age is still here. But the power has been broken. That's why we're made new. And so Christian, this is true of you today. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Your old person, your old man, the one who was enslaved incessantly to sin, 
that person has died. That's true of you. You know what else is true of you, Christian? Because of Christ, the curse has been removed because Christ has taken your curse upon himself. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Not only has the old person died, not only has the curse been removed, but now, Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, we rejoice because we have been delivered from the elements of this world and from, from the bondage of the law. And Paul is laboring all throughout this letter not to just remind them of these freedoms that they have and these new realities that are true of them. He's not reminding them of that just so they would have this dry, formal, intellectual assent to these things. No, Paul is trying to keep the reader and the original audience and you and I, by extension, from passionless agreement with this truth. Paul is pleading that these Christians, he's pleading that you and I would truly glory in the cross, that we would boast in the wonder of the cross, that we would cherish the benefit of the cross. Paul is saying kind of like the first present that you show off on Christmas afternoon after all of your gifts are open, that first present, this ought to be the glories of the cross for the Christian. And I just wonder this morning, church, are you this way with the glory of the cross, the good news of the gospel? The letter of Galatians has not been written just so that you would be able to put another theological truth on the shelf of mental ascent. This has been written so that your heart would be set ablaze so that you would give and live your life in white-hot worship of the only one who's worthy because of what he's done. And I think verse 14 is a good summary of the gospel where Paul just says, it's only because of the work of Christ and not mine that I belong to him. I've referenced this a few times. would encourage you, if you've never heard it, to... Google it, not now, after the sermon. Elder D.J. Ward was the pastor of Lexington, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, of Main Street Baptist Church. Uh, at a Together for the Gospel conference several years ago, uh, they were talking about the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel, and they had clips of certain pastors from years gone by, and they showed a clip of uh, Elder D.J. Ward. And it was so moving. And literally to this date, every time I watch this clip, I'm moved to tears. But I just want to read to you what it is that D.J. Ward said on this point where Paul is contending that it is only because of the work of Christ that he has any standing with God. D.J. Ward says this, I contend this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt but it was an accomplishment. And now, brothers and sisters, when one accomplishes something, it means somewhere that they've had to have an assignment. So what was the assignment? His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save 
Not attempt to save, not try to save, not hope to save, not want to save, but he shall save his people from their sin. Now hear this, I hear on the television and I hear it in churches that God has done all that he can do, the rest is up to you. If the rest is up to you, then he didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, he didn't accomplish it. And I've also heard this, that you've got to help God save you. He can't do it by himself. If God can't do it by himself, then he didn't accomplish it. He's a false God. He's a liar and you best not trust him. If God didn't accomplish your salvation, then we ought to stop singing Jesus paid it all and start singing he paid some of it. Now, brothers and sisters, if he did not accomplish it, we are here in vain. You can have all the religion you want, If this was not accomplished, then we are all going to hell. It's just that blunt. It's just that simple. It's just that clear. But if he did do it, he doesn't need your best. And your works do not speak for you. If he did do it, you can leave here this morning rejoicing that your sins are now under the blood. If he stands as your substitute your mediator before God this morning, he is pleading the blood. He's pleading his blood, the perfect sacrifice, that holy attainment. He is pleading the blood and you can rest that all of your sins are under the blood. Did he accomplish it? Did he fail? Do we need to have more that come after him? Do we need another prophet who would come after him? I declare this morning that he paid it all. He paid it all. Every drop of it, every sin I was going to commit, every sin I thought about committing, every sin I have committed. He nailed it to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. And Paul says that if that captures your attention most, then that must be your most prominent boast. And he goes on to say that if Paul says, I boast in Christ alone, and when I do that, the world is dead to me. It's not that the world is dead. The power's Uh, of the enemy, this world, forces of the world, it's still alive. But the gospel, Christ has destroyed the power of the world over him. Since meeting Christ, the world has come to look like a despised thing to Paul. That should be true of all Christians. But he also says that when the world looks at Paul, so Paul looks at the world and it's a despised thing. But Paul says also when the world looks at him, Paul looks unattractive and despised in the eyes of the world. The love of Christ at the cross of Calvary has mastered Paul and it's held him captive. And so what is it that's holding you captive? What is it that's holding your attention? What is it that's most beautiful to you this morning? Where is it that you're boasting most in? Paul contends with every one of us, every Christian in the room this morning. 
make Christ and him crucified your only boast. And you say, but wait a minute. I thought there were other places where Paul tells me, Romans chapter 5, verse 2, to boast in the glory of God. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 3, that I'm to boast in my tribulations. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 11, that I am to boast in God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that I am to boast in my weaknesses. And wait a minute, Justin, I thought that worship is boasting and preaching is boasting and sharing the gospel is boasting. And what Paul is saying is boast in that which accentuates the cross. Because apart from the cross, there is only condemnation and judgment for you. Think about this. Apart from the cross, there's only condemnation and judgment. So if you're a Christian, everything that you enjoy, it's owing to the death of Christ. And so Paul says, if it's all owing to the death of Christ, then rejoice in the cross because that's where all the blessings were purchased. And so he's not saying, don't boast in God, don't boast in your weakness. He's not contradicting, contradicting himself. He's saying it all fundamentally comes back to the cross. And because of that, that's where we boast. And Paul says in verse 15, the issue in this letter, I mean, the whole, the main point of the letter of Galatians is not about circumcision. It's not even about uncircumcision. It's not that circumcision was a great evil and uncircumcision was this great uh, heralded virtue. If circumcision was practiced, if what they were preaching at this time was circumcision and that had nothing to do with how you earned salvation, I think Paul would have been okay with it. I mean, that's what we see in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. He encourages Timothy to be circumcised so that the gospel would go forth. And the reason he does that is because in Acts chapter 16, there wasn't a connection between right standing with God and circumcision of the flesh. His problem wasn't with circumcision. His problem was the thought that there was something that we could do to merit even a portion of righteousness before God. And so if someone stood up and preached and said, you must be circumcised to be right with God, Paul opposed it. And if someone stood up and preached and said, you must not be circumcised in order to be right with God, Paul would have opposed it. Circumcision, that's not the issue. The issue is how does Christ make us new creation? And it's by nothing that you and I can do. Nothing we can do can accomplish that. But as you place your faith in Christ alone, this is what happens when the Spirit comes to dwell in you and changes your desires and gives you a new heart. You no longer are the person that you were. God changes you from the inside out. And that's the focus of the letter of Galatians. And you get to verse 16, and Paul says, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul prays in verse 16, seeking to encourage everyone who's going to walk as a new creation. 
He prays that God's peace and mercy will belong to those that rule, uh, that are uh, living according to this rule. What rule? This mindset that Christ, uh, being Christ-focused as opposed to being self-focused. He prays for peace because of the, of the disruption that these false teachers were bringing. He prays for mercy because as he cast his eye to the final judgment, what's needed from God is mercy. And he says that that peace and mercy would be upon all who walk according to this rule and upon the Israel of God. And you say, who is the Israel of God? Well, I believe Paul has argued throughout this letter that circumcision is unnecessary to belong to the lineage of Abraham, to be a true child of Abraham. In fact, Paul has made clear that it's faith in, in the work and the provision of God alone is what makes us true children of Abraham. And so when he speaks of the Israel of God, I believe he's driving home the point that believers in Christ are members of this new creation. They are the true Israel. I believe it would be highly confusing for Paul to have argued the whole letter that Jews and Gentiles are equal, Galatians 3, 28. And after emphasizing that believers are Abraham's children, for Paul to get to the end of this letter and say, oh, it's only Jews who believe in God. They're the true Israel. This wedge would have, been, uh, would have driven uh, a gap and a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And that would have played into the hands of the opponents. These false teachers would have been inconsistent with the arguments that Paul has made. And so all believers in Christ are part of true Israel. And then verse 17 from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Paul says, let, let no one be confused from this point, from this point on. No one should trouble Paul with these requirements of the old creation by trying to impose circumcision to mark his flesh. Paul says, no, 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 I now bear different marks that show my identification with God. And it's the marks that I've received because I've been faithful to this message. These marks authenticated his ministry. And contrary to what the teachers would say, again, they would show up and they would preach and they would say, do you want to follow a guy that looks like that? And Paul says, yeah, the marks and the scars and the wounds that I have for the cause of Christ verify that in the same way that the world hated Christ, they too hate me. And you follow me, they will hate you. And then ver, uh, Paul closes this letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Paul's reverberating reminder that just as grace was needed on the day they entered into the Christian life, how were they going to continue? What did they need as they closed the letter and they walked away from this letter? They needed the grace of God. Think of how you were when you became a Christian. Whether you remember all the details of not, or not, you knew that Christ was your only hope. You weren't relying on your works. 
Your works were not your hope. They were worthless. You believed that Christ was sufficient, that you could merit nothing, that it was owing only to his grace. And Paul says the same attitude that you had when you came into the Christian faith will be the attitude that marks you as you faithfully continue in the Christian faith. Christian, you need grace today just as much as you did on day one. And you're going to need it the moment before you breathe your last, just as much as you need it today, just as much as you needed it day one. Paul is reminding them that as they look to Christ in faith and they found his grace to be sufficient, so too his grace will be sufficient as they seek to end their race well. God doesn't stand over us and say, sure, you needed Christ and my grace then, but now you can do a little bit more. No. Christ was sufficient then, and Christ is sufficient today, and Christ will be sufficient until you stand before him and your faith gives way to sight. God knows that we can't live perfectly righteous, so he sent one to live perfectly righteous for us. And Jesus lived perfectly righteous under the law, and he died to pay the penalty of our disobedience. He took God's wrath in our place. He rose from the dead three days later as God displayed to all that this was his perfectly righteous son. And if you believe in him, not trusting in anything you can do, then God will justify you. He will make you right before him. Crediting all of Christ's righteousness to you, putting all of your sin debt on him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message that we needed to hear day one. It's the message that we need to hear this morning. It's the message that you and I will need to hear for the rest of our earthly lives. And so when we sing and we declare all we have is Christ, that's not a pitiful admission. That's not some pitiful admission of failure. It is a cry of triumph and victory. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, there is a meal that's meant to mark that cry of victory. And we come to this table free from the law, free from condemnation, free to enjoy and obey our God as we proclaim Jesus as our only hope.